0: Okay, so that's an intense reading. (laughs) I don't know about you, but by the end of it, I feel um, simultaneously a little bit wilted, and I have lots and lots of questions. Um, So the first one is, how do we apply this to our real lives in 2023 and I think a key to that is a verse that comes right before the words that we read this morning. Mm. Jesus starts out this part of the Sermon on the Mount saying, do not think that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. I've come not to abolish them, but to fulfill. And by the law and the prophets, he meant what we call the Hebrew scriptures or the, or the Old Testament. He said he came to fulfill those and then immediately he says, you've heard it say don't murder, but I say don't even be angry. You've heard it said this, but I say this. And so that doesn't sound like abolishing, but maybe it's um, reinterpreting something. So it's, um, it's confusing. <laughs> See, it's,
1: yes, it's confusing. Uh, one of our uh, colleagues here in the New England conference, uh, Steve Garness Holmes, uh, He suggests that Jesus actually isn't abolishing or reinterpreting. Uh, Instead, he's offering a third way. Uh, He's getting to the heart of what the law and the prophets are all about, which is God's love for us. Uh, Ultimately, it's all about love, even when the words sound really harsh. Chopping off hands and stuff is uh, problematic. Um, But what God wants more than anything in all of Scripture, throughout Scripture, is a relationship with us, with these human creatures that God created in all their amazing wonder and all their recalcitrant awfulness. God wants to love us and for us to love God back and one another period. Ever since Genesis 2, that has been the theme of all of Scripture. Love, reconnecting, repair. The thing is, we can't just be told, okay, y'all, just love, because we always like, our, we, we, we want the details. Uh, like, the, like the famous story of the young man who was told, go, love your neighbor as yourself. And the first thing he does is go, yeah, all right, but like um, who's my neighbor? Drink it down, give it to me in black and white. So God gave the people laws, the laws of Moses. And ever since people have tended to focus on the letter of the law because it's concrete, it's finite. And you have lawyers who tell you what's right and what's wrong and whether you're following it or not, rather than entering organically into the messy and less predictable but infinitely richer relationship of love that God offers us within and under the letter of the law. So in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is reminding us that scriptures aren't about rules, even though there's a lot of rules. What they are ultimately is an invitation to love. They aren't a legal contract. They are about caring about God, about caring about creation, about caring for each other, caring caring for ourselves. It's all about love. So with that in mind,
0: we want to dig into these scriptures again. And in particular we want to look at the section in this today's reading about divorce, because well, frankly, it's the hardest one. So we'll dig in there. I don't know, the
1: chopping off hand thing <laughs> is still bothering me.
0: <laughs> I will be honest with you, whenever I read those verses about divorce, whenever I hear them read, something deep in my gut winces a little bit. And I want to say, wait, really? Like Jesus, I I take you seriously. I really do. I'm trying to follow you. I really am. But I have to tell you that I know good people, people I love, for whom divorce has proved to be the most loving and healing option in a difficult situation. Maybe you have that response too. Maybe your gut winces a little bit. And what I want to say this morning is, Stay with that feeling. Don't just push that wincing away, because I think it has something to teach us.
1: And today I'm going to give you a reason to give thanks for being in a United Methodist Church. Uh, <laughs> we don't always do that, but today often, we do. Because we've been given an interpretive tool uh, by the founder of the Methodist movement, John Wesley, Uh, that is popularly called the Wesleyan quadrilateral. Wesley never used the term. Uh, That goes to uh, Albert Outler, a 20th century theologian. But Wesleyan, because it's named after John Wesley, and quadrilateral, uh, because Wesley liked math. No. Uh, Quadrilateral, because Wesley proposed kind of a four-sided approach to making wise, faithful responses to life's Big decisions. Faced with making a, a, a faithful decision, Wesley would start with the saving truth of Scripture. But he was wise enough to know that the Bible is not always clear and coherent. Or consistent. Or consistent. and he knew that the Bible could be weaponized to prove just about anything by people of ill will. Wesley thought that difficult, ambiguous, or obscure Bible passages should be interpreted in light of Scripture's great central themes of love and reconciliation and reconnection.
0: And so as he considered scripture, Wesley also talked about tradition by which he meant the tradition of the church. What has the church thought? What has the church taught through the centuries? And what are the writings and the practices of some of the best thinkers and the wisest and most faithful people over time? And asked, what can we learn from their writings? What can they show us? And especially in our day, we ask What are the voices of folks who've been marginalized by the church? What do women say about this passage? What do people of color say about
1: this passage? And what does that have to teach us? So we've got scripture and tradition. Then Wesley added to that, he applied reason. Wesley believed that God gave us brains. And wants us to use them. Wesley was a good graduate of Oxford and so he encouraged people to bring scholarship and intellect and science and philosophy to the process. Now remember this is the 1750s when when Wesley was doing some of this stuff. He believed that studying God's revelation in the natural world could help us interpret a special revelation found in the Bible giving honor to both the natural order and to scripture. So he was
0: pro-science.
1: He was pro-science. In fact, he made most of his living from royalties from a book that he wrote, a medical book, a popular medical book called A Primitive Physic, with ending with a with a K on the end of physic. Uh, that was a popular and surprisingly still pretty good uh, booklet on how to live a healthy lifestyle. It included diet, exercise, and all sorts of stuff that uh, we still talk about today.
0: And then combined with those three things, Scripture, tradition, and reason, Wesley, I think uniquely in his day, combined what he called experience. Because he believed that God not only gave us brains, God gave us hearts. And God gave us life experiences that could inform the way that we interpret what it is that God's calling us to do in our lives. How are the things that I've experienced and how are the experiences that other people tell me, how do those get mixed into this whole conversation?
1: So my mental picture of the quadrilateral is, is four ropes being pulled Uh, The scripture rope, tradition, reason, and experience ropes, all four held in a creative tension with one another, so that no one thing goes pulling everybody off and running into some strange place, but creating a wise, practical, and faithful path. Toward our life decisions that can transcend the traps of of wooden fundamentalism over here, or popular opinion over here, or cultural fads over there, or literalism over that away. Rather than just blindly accepting or completely rejecting Scripture, the quadrilateral provides a third way toward wise discipleship toward wise living
0: so maybe because i'm a cook first and a sailor second (laughs) i don't think of the quadrilateral as four ropes tugging four different directions i think of it more as a stew right you put in scripture and you put in tradition
1: and you put in i'm sorry that metaphor is just wrong (laughs) Uh, no it can't work
0: (laughs) and so so given that given that tool Here's how I go back to the passages about divorce. I take seriously that marriage is a lifetime commitment. I take seriously that covenant, and when I, work, when I marry folk, I do premarital counseling with them. I try to give them as many tools as I can. And I also know that life is complicated and sometimes throws us curveballs that we don't expect. I know that things that seem like a good idea don't always turn out to be a a good idea long-term, right? I also know that in Jesus' day, only men could create a writ of divorce. It was not an option for women. And that when a man divorced a woman in Jesus' day, often that put her out on the street without any other source of support. And so it was a double burden for women who already were struggling to be empowered in a patriarchal society. So I put that in the mix. And I, reckon, I, I agree with, with Jesus. I recognize it in our own culture. To look on someone lustfully diminishes their humanity and my own. I don't have any problem with that part of what Jesus teaches. I try to bring all of that, all of my experience, all of my knowing about scripture and tradition, and mix it together with my reason, think my way through it as much as I can, ask other people their opinions so that we reason through it together, marinate it all in lots and lots of prayer, refusing to take the easy out in any decision making, and instead walking step by step. And so, when there are times that it is clear that divorce is the loving and healthy and healing option, then, hard as that is and tragic as that is, that is the place for me to say yes. I believe God gave us brains and hearts and guts that are big enough and wise enough to work our way through these decisions with scripture and tradition and reason and experience and with each other to whatever the next right step is. And then from that step to figure out what the next right step is. And that God journeys with us through all of it.
1: I grew up in a very conservative church tradition that claimed to be to take the Bible literally and that everyone within that congregation was following every part of the Bible until it didn't happen or until someone fell down and failed and they either had to guiltily keep something a secret or feel they had to leave that community And their only option intellectually, it seemed, was just to toss the faith, to toss scripture and walk away feeling really awful or abused. I would argue that to engage scripture the way Wesley calls us to, to apply tradition, reason, experience, and the best scriptural knowledge to it shows more love and respect for the scripture than the fundamentalist approach. I think it gives more love and respect toward God than simply saying, the Bible says it, I believe it, that settles it. That voice is so not fair. That voice (laughs) is not fair. The Bible says it, I believe it, that settles it. There you go. The That's too quick an answer. It's too unthinking. It's too legalistic, and there's not much love there. And it doesn't give us a chance to really engage with how the Bible is speaking to us. Because I would also argue that it is in engaging Scripture that keeps us from simply dismissing it out of hand. I mean, I'm I'm gonna critique our current Culture as well. Fellow progressive Christians, when many of us read stuff we don't like in the Bible, we just kind of ignore it, or we toss it out of our personal canon, or it becomes a roadblock to our approaching scripture at all. The Wesleyan Quadrilateral is an amazing tool to bring to our reading of the Bible, especially the Sermon on the Mount, where there's some really radical, hyperbolic, and metaphorical stuff. Not, we don't do it in order to abandon or explain away the hard parts, but to be invited to really engage the texts, to respect them enough to wrestle with them, to struggle, and to find the love that undergirds it all. To ask, what is Jesus really trying to teach me here? Can I bring myself to engage and interpret the text? And do I allow the text to engage and interpret me?
0: So this is how we engage scripture each week as we're getting ready to make sermons, and it's what we offer to you as well. First of all, remembering that it is all about love. And not squishy hallmark love, though that's fine as far as it goes, but that's not very far. Real love, solid love, what Krista Tippett calls robust love, love that stands up and wrestles with things. And secondly, to use all the tools we have to use scripture and tradition and reason and experience all of the resources we have so that we can come to a decision that seems to us and to those we know and love to be a holy place. And when we've done that, then we can simply say yes, or we can simply say no. And we don't have to pile other justifications on top of it. And that, too, is what Jesus is asking
1: us to do. So as we continue to read the Sermon on the Mount over these several weeks, we invite you to take a deep dive with us. Uh, we invite you to go way beyond the letter of any law, including the law of Moses, into the heart of God herself, into the heart of love itself. You're going to, uh, If you're on our emailing list, uh, we'll be sending out another set of different translations of the Sermon on the Mount. We're in the midst of uh, what, what we were calling the, the Truman Challenge, uh, where back in the 50s, President Truman, of all people, uh, challenged reporters to read the Sermon on the Mounts every day uh, to figure out what his administration, he claimed, was all about. And we, as moderns, want you all to... Do that too, reading it every day in different translations to get a real different feel for how it is Jesus is calling us to live counter-culturally in a world that worships power. We invite you to dive deep, find the heart of God.
0: Our next hymn is number 349, Uh, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus.